Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hello, my friends. Thanks for tuning in again to another episode of If and When. Through the magic of technology, we are on the road right now on tour. Nancy and I on our Christmas tour in Ontario and New Brunswick and then across Newfoundland. If you'd like to join us for a show, head to ianfoster.ca. All of the individual ticket information is there And it would be cool to celebrate the final days of 2019 in concert with you. So this is the season finale two-parter, like a good TV show. The final two parts to If and When for 2019 and with a very brief break in between. So I started this podcast in April of this year and every Thursday since early April I have been putting out episodes of this podcast. And really, I started recording them almost a year ago. In January of 2019, I sat down for what will become the first 18 episodes of If and When with the guests that you can still find and will still be able to find, of course, during this break on the podcast app. And this podcast has just followed me through 2019 and been a really interesting sidekick, I guess, on the roller coaster of a year this has been. I spent my cold Newfoundland winter months in my home studio having some pretty impactful and meaningful conversations with veteran songwriters and veteran artists over how they do this. And and I think it all started for me because I was questioning it myself as any artist does. You know, why? Why why do we do this? It's obviously a giant question and you can't ask yourself that question every single day because, you know, you have to go to the supermarket and get stuff. You can't be so busy asking why that you can't go to the supermarket or, you know, make sure that um, that thing gets paid for or whatever it is. So we all kind of push that question down a little bit, but it tingles there. And when you're in the arts, it really tingles there. It, it comes up when you're trying to make something. It comes up when you're trying to promote something. It comes up right after you've made something and put it out into the world. Why? Over and over again. And also how? How do we make this all work? And the answer that I've seen over the countless hours, it's it's been easily tens of hours that you could listen to this podcast now, is that there isn't one single answer. And I would never try to sum it up here in this little monologue at the beginning of the episode. But I know that I feel richer for the conversations that I've had with people who I consider friends or people that now I consider friends after having some of these personal conversations with. And I'm glad I did this. You know, I remember sitting at tables in in Porto, in Portugal, looking at final artwork that my friend Andrew Winter helped me with for this podcast, for that graphic that we've used, um, and, and sort of figuring out how to roll all this out. I remember those first bunch of episodes coming out and, and really treasuring any feedback that people gave me, people who were musicians on tour who who wrote and said, you know, hey, we've been listening while we've been driving between gigs, which is super meaningful to me because that's literally how I started listening to podcasts was doing that very thing. Or people just telling me, you know, that they throw it on when they're doing housework. You know, it's 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 become another expression for me along with the live shows and the writing of songs and all this stuff. So that's been really cool. And it, it felt uh, without debate that the last episode for the season would be this live episode that we recorded at The Rooms, which was another crazy growth in this podcast journey. The idea of sitting down in front of an audience and trying to have a personal conversation with another artist, in this case, Mary Walsh. And this is the end of, I guess, If and When 1.0, this two-parter, and then the beginning of 
2.0, which will feature some more live episodes. I'm happy to say that I'm partnering with the College of the North Atlantic here in St. John's to record a, a short series of, of talks that will air when season two begins, and also to decide on some new formatting for If and When, which will include some music from certain artists being played through the podcast as well. Anyway, I won't say too much, but it's all it's all in the works. So before we get to Mary here, I'll just say thank you again for everyone who's tuned in so far this season. I really do appreciate it. I'm really happy for the dialogue that I've started with some of you as a result of this podcast. It genuinely means a lot to me. And the beauty of podcasts are that they're there. So if you've missed a few episodes this season, this is your chance to go back and catch up with people that you know and maybe will know better or people that you don't know who will become your friends a little bit through the heart that they gave out in some of these these interviews. You know, it was it was inspiring to me. So I hope it is to you as well. So here we go. Part one of my conversation with, with Mary. We met at the rooms on October 20th at 2 p.m. Thanks so much to the audience that came out. They asked some great questions. You'll hear at the end of part two, there's a brief Q&A with Mary. And we talked about all things Mary Walsh. We talked about her book that came out uh, recently. We talked about characters on This Hour House 22 Minutes, her work with Codco. She is a uh, fierce personality in the best kind of way. She is open and honest and an inspiration, genuinely. So I hope you enjoy part one of my two-part conversation with Mary Walsh. Thanks for doing this, Mary. Okay, thank you for having me, Ian. Of course. Ian and I grew up around the corner from each other, but he grew up 30 years later than me, <laughs> so I missed him. <laughs> it's true. Should we start big, Mary? Or should sure, we start sure. Go ahead. I just realized I said Big Mary, you know, like very Newfoundland. <laughs> like that sandwich mm -hmm. from Mary Brown's. So the subtitle of all this is, is uh, of this, is Creators and Why They Do What They Do. Why, Mary? Oh, that's interesting. Easy I haven't question. thought about that in a long time. Um, you know, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a journalist, but unfortunately, I... You know, after grade eight, I kind of went mad for a while, and then I never even went to school, I don't think, at Holy Heart. Well, I think I went in grade nine. I was actually on the, uh, yeah, I was actually pretty good still in grade nine. I was actually on the student council and stuff. But I remember Sister Mary Nano ripped my student council pin off my, uh, off my um, uh, uniform and uh, told me I'd be lucky to get a job slinging hash in a Chinese restaurant after she smacked me across the face. And I thought to say, Sister Nano, they don't have hash in a Chinese restaurant, but I thought better of it. I thought, no, I won't point that out to Sister Mary Nano right now. But uh, so, you know, I did really badly in school, and then I was going to marry an American from Argentia, and then I did really badly at that. I went down to Colorado, because I really had a lot of uh, ambition, mm -hmm. but very little skill. And, uh, or, or a way to apply that ambition. You know what I mean? I was lost, really. Mm. And uh, failed at just about everything. And then I got a job, oh yeah, I was, <laughs> I was, uh, I had worked at the arcade on the Out They Go While They Last, now in our men's department upstairs, on the PA, and also in the uh, women's section where you just tidied up bin fulls of bras all day long, which is, you know, at a certain age, you, the thought of a bra is enough to, just the shame of touching a bra. It's I'm just like, going to jump even, in. Even, you know, coming to terms with a bra. I'm going to jump in quickly and say, this is already the best answer to why I've ever asked <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I didn't have anything, and I was depressed. I was 18. The kind of marriage thing had failed. The idea of getting into journalism school, I didn't have the marks, blah, blah, blah. I quit the arcade, but I didn't really quit. I just didn't go in, which was how I usually dealt with problems, just disappeared. And, uh, and I was lying on the couch one day, and I was watching um, Coronation Street, which, honestly, Coronation Street has been on forever. And, uh, like, I was watching Coronation Street, and then they announced that they were hiring somebody for a summer replacement at the CBC. When I lived on Henry Street with Aunt May, and CBC Radio was just, you know, down over the hill a little bit, and they said they were hiring, and 
I don't know why I thought I could do it, but I thought I would just audition. They were having auditions. So I, I really knew I was going to fail and it would be awful and everything. But I, so I went and I did the audition with Doug Late and I was completely relaxed because I didn't, I knew I wasn't going to get it. And then I got the job. Then of course I tightened up and uh, did a terrible job all summer long on this uh, hour long program. Uh, the only response we got from the public was a man wrote in and said, who is the mad giggler on from 10 to 11? And uh, so anyway, while I was on that, I, I know it takes a long time to get there. While I was on that, Dudley Cox, who started the Newfoundland Traveling Theater Company, he and David Weiser, heard me and he was doing a play in the basement of the Arts and Culture Center. And he asked me to be in it because he liked my voice. And I said yes, for whatever reason. And then I did really badly at that, too. Uh, you know, I just found it so humiliating and embarrassing and shame-making to be standing on stage saying lines. I really, you know, then I got in with that crowd, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, Tommy Sexton and, uh, uh, and then we went out on the road that next summer with Dudley and David doing uh, See How They Run and... Um, the Wizard of Oz. Uh, so Andy and Bob Joy and Kathy Jones and Greg Malone and Tommy Sexton and Diane Olson. And I got in with them and then they were, I, I, I got a job then at CBC as a researcher in Here and Now when they used to have the half hour show. Rex Murphy was on it then and Jennifer and oh I don't know, a whole bunch of people. But I was the researcher, I did nothing basically, because they did all their own research. That was a great job, uh, but a bit embarrassing also. But uh, they, everybody was going to Toronto to get work, and I auditioned to get into Ryerson, into the theater program. Now, honestly, it's going to sound like I'm just making this up, but I did such a bad audition. I was so ashamed standing up auditioning. I was doing something from uh, Taming of the Shrew that the, the, the teachers who were in the audition came up and held my hand so I could do it. <laughs> I don't know how I got in. Anyway, but there were like 170 people. Um, and um, so then while we were there, we started, we Tommy and Diane went to Theatre Pasmerai to try to get in a show. And Paul Thompson said, look, here's 300 bucks. Go and write your own show. And so uh, they asked me to do it because I was living in the house with them. And I, we did it. And uh, we got a good review, and I quit right away because you weren't allowed to work in the theater if you were taking the theater program. Uh, so I quit, and I got a job working at um, the Cock Door on Dundas Street, which was really bad. I must say, really, why I'm doing it is because I was so bad at everything else. <laughs> but uh, but you know, I got a job there, and that was terrible. I got fired within the first week, and um, or fired, or I let I stopped, or whatever. And so I went back to Caught on a Stick, and then we decided to bring Caught on a Stick home and tour Newfoundland. And really, Andy Jones visited us from England. He was with a theater company in England, and I was I I just was terrible on stage. And Andy just took me aside when we were in Twillingate, actually. We, we were sleeping on gym floors, like, doing the shows. And Andy took me aside uh, and just helped me to feel like... Like, I honestly used to act sideways like that. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Which wasn't really effective. I don't even know why anybody kept me around. But anyway, I must have had something. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, Andy really helped me to be able to... Just say the lines. You know what I mean? Just stand there and say the lines. And, and really, it took me a long, long time to realize, because it, that kind of self-involvement that people, often people who feel really bad about themselves have, where they think everybody's thinking, oh my God, she's awful. Nobody's, you know, like some, it took me years for people to go, people are coming to have a good time. They want to have a good time. They're, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and so, anyway. Uh, that's why. And then I kept going. <laughs> Thanks for coming, I got everybody. Better and, at, it. Uh, <laughs> at, at any so obviously circuitous route, but that's normal. I think yeah, every I artist think so, yeah. has a circuitous yeah. route to this. Like what? Looking back now, what was 
Um, what were you thinking during uh, this period? Was this just a uh, sort of along for the ride? Were there moments here where you're like, this next thing is the greatest thing, and then it, it was or wasn't, or how did it work? Once we got over caught on a stick, and we started to write um, 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 Sickness, Death, and Beyond the Grave, mm-hmm. um, which are the three at that time, when we traveled through Newfoundland doing Caught on a Stick, uh, that's what everybody talked about all the time, sickness, death, and, and you know, fairies and ghosts and stuff like that. <laughs> so that's what we called our next show. But I got it then. You know what I mean? After Andy had helped me in that tour, and I got, I wanted to have more, sta- I, like I fought like a dog to have more stage time, which is basically what everybody in CODCO did. Right. Uh, except that occasionally people would be very generous. Like I remember um, Greg Malone did Betty Anderson wins an Oscar. It was his idea, like, you, you know, you're in the in a ball gown and you stand up and you fall down and you get a little trickle of blood and then you fall down, <laughs> keep falling down on your way to the stage. And, and uh, so he just handed it to me. It was the most fun I ever had doing that. Of course, it did. I did have to have back surgery after because I didn't really, I didn't stay long enough in theater school to learn how to fall, so I used to have to actually fall. And that's why Greg Toomey to this day will never do a scene with me where there's any fighting because I don't know actually act. Your method. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, I'm just actually hitting you. So he goes, is she hitting me in this scene because I'm not doing it if she is? <laughs> but um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, that's, uh, I, I after that, after I got into it, I really got into it, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it seemed, I remember being in the bathroom at Peter Narvaez's when he was married to one of the many Anns he was married to. Um, Peter's gone now, but, uh, and I remember people standing outside and talking about Codco and saying very you know, positive things about it. And I remember, I was just doing my pee, and I thought, wow, I, I, I'm part of that. You know what I mean? Mm. It gave me a kind of... I felt like, oh, you know, so it was really, yeah. I think I remember that moment really well, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. cool. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit. So, um, I mean, you've traced a bunch of stuff there uh, of that journey. At the youngest age, I mean, when was the, was there, you said you wanted to be a journalist at first, but was there comedy from the beginning somewhere in the childhood? Well, you know, I mean, in I don't know what it was like on Young Street, but on Carter's Hill, if you weren't funny, you might as well go out and hang yourself, really. (laughs) And in our family, I, you know, I, I left it too, so I didn't really get to know. <laughs> uh, but you know, in our family, you could get away with anything. It was it was coin of the realm, actually, comedy, right? Like, uh, uh, but but we were very sarcastic and hurtful mm. comic, mm. and it really took me a long while to recognize that you didn't have to be mean all the time <laughs> to be funny. Uh, and and that's maybe I'm 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 you know what's that thing when you're piling everything all together and I'm being a bit mean about my family, I guess. But they were very, very funny and I was the least funny person of my family. But even, I grew up with my two maiden aunts and an uncle and even in Aunt May and Aunt Fiend's, which was quite a quiet kind of sometimes grim house. You know, people who were funny were just loved. You just, you know, it's part of Newfoundland, it's part of the way we deal with things for whatever reason. Like Ray Guy used to say, we had a genetic pool the size of a pudding bowl. So whoever first started that pudding bowl, they probably had a real good sense of humor or they had a way of looking at things, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And then we all got us, <laughs> plus heart disease. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, it, it just was... And then I, I uh, when we were on the road doing um, that first show, uh, The Wizard of Oz, I remember Andy had... Greg wasn't on that show, he came on the next show with us. And Andy had routines. I'd never even imagined this. Like, uh, he had routines that he'd do, like the Newfoundland delegation in Ottawa, you know, and they'd have a translator. We tanks, we think. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And mm-hmm. and uh, the phone call, hello, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Pritchard, Alfred's dead. Oh, yes, he <laughs> was awful. He fell thousands of feet to his debt in the swirling tide below. Say anything before he died? Did he call you, Mom? Yeah. God damn you, Mom, I believe, was the last <laughs> words he said. But anyway, so he had all these routines that he did, and I'd never really run into anybody like that, like, because I think Greg and Andy had wanted to be comedians from when they were little, and Tommy right. wanted to be a song and dance person from when he was little, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I just, we just, we, you know, because we'd be traveling around all over, like the road to uh, St. Anthony wasn't paved then. Uh, that's a long time ago. And, um, you know, we'd be driving up there, and Andy'd be doing, and it just was so, 
just gave me so much joy, you know, right. like uh, it was just wonderful. What right? were those early shows like? The first, the, the you mean the Cotton Stick, our first yeah. real shows? Yeah. Oh, they were great, really. You know, there was, uh, we, we used, hello, Mrs., we used Around the Bay Taxi because uh, back in the day, like 76 people would be in one Ford Fairlane coming into town. <laughs> and uh, so we did that, and then uh, so there was a blind guy, and oh my God, you got your, brought your sunglasses with you. Oh my God. John Charles, go back and get me sunglasses. Uh, no, I'm blind, actually. Blind, oh, my God, I hate to be blind worse than anything, I think. Uh, must be awful, you know. Uh, <laughs> must be awful. And then somebody has to stop to strain their potatoes, and then she shows the blind guy over to the side of the road because even though you can't see no one, we don't want no one to see you. And then he falls over the cliff thousands of feet to his death in the swirling tide below. It was still kind of cruel, I guess, in a way. But uh, uh, <laughs> so that was great. And we got a great review in Toronto, you know, and we were playing in a little theater. It was actually a, a homeless kind of place where they served. Uh, it was in the side of a church. Mm-hmm. And we got a great review. And then we got big crowds and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. it was, uh, we were lucky. And then we came home. And then some people were mad at us home because they thought we were making fun of Newfoundland. And actually what we were making fun of is the way that Newfoundland was seen in the rest of the country. Like, we, you never saw us. We, mm. weren't, we were invisible, except for every now and again, a national film board would do a horny-handed fisher folk kind of you know, right, right. thing. And so we, we're making fun of that, right? Yeah. And, uh, Talk to me that, about that nuance a little, because I find that a fascinating subject. The idea of your... Because I know what you mean. You're not making fun of Newfoundland, you know? But there is, there is that line there. You were able to walk it of of showing what Newfoundland is without making fun of it, but still being funny. Ah, yeah. Like, you know, I mean, God in the Stick was a series of things, but the very first thing that come is, uh, you know, uh, it kind of foretold a lot of things that, you know, because it's just like right now, I'd like to t- ask Margaret Atwood to stop writing because she seems to be prophesying. And like we, like the whole tourism industry in Newfoundland, there was no real tourism industry in Newfoundland at that time. But the first sketch is Tommy playing this, come in, come in, uh, you know, Sarah, you know, visitors here from the mainland. And then uh, they meet mother and, you know, all these things. And in the end, we catch them in a net. And, uh, you know, um, I don't, it doesn't sound that funny. Uh, But then uh, there was, I remember there was a song, the wild cod lie dead in the ocean, the wild cod lie dead in the sea, all caused by something pollution caused by the oil industry, which actually had been written on the door of uh, those four lines had been written on the door of a bar uh, toilet. And I just brought it in. I went, wow, you know, because it seemed ridiculous that, well, first of all, to call it wild cod, there is only, you know what I yeah. mean, as far as we, and that they would be lying dead. At the, it just was, that was like 1973, you know, just didn't seem possible. And, um, but, um, that, I guess that's not the question you asked me, but um, <laughs> but I thought it'd be better to go that way. Uh, no, please. I'm taking please. I'm taking my my page from Mr. Shear's book. I'm just not answering. Oh, we're any we're gonna questions. get there. Yeah. We're gonna get there. Don't worry. But um, the uh, the what I guess that we felt, and you know, many people, we felt that we were the. That, that we had been Britain's doormat and Canada's laughing stock. That was at a point when there were a lot of newfie jokes. Remember, there used to be a whole station in Quebec that just used to spend the morning telling newfie jokes. And, and really, we never saw ourselves in a way. And plus, I guess, for us anyway, and I don't speak for all Newfoundlanders, but we felt a bit ashamed of ourselves because we seemed to be so far behind everybody else because this was like 1970, and we'd only been in since 49. And, you know, and this was the beginning of... of for us anyway, and for others, of saying, no, 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 we have something worthwhile. Mm-hmm. We've got to, but we were, play, we were passing out pamphlets, you know, or posters to people at the horseshoe. And uh, Diane um, passed out a, a, a poster to this guy, and she said, where are you from? He said, Windsor, Ontario. Ontario. And she said, oh. And then uh, she said, we're doing the show about Newfoundland. He said, oh. Oh, he said, I'm from Newfoundland. She said, yes, I know. He said, uh, but I don't, I don't like to tell everyone because they makes fun of you, right? And so that's where we were then. Mm-hmm. We were at the, like, you could make people in, on, 
in Toronto actually fall down in the elevator laughing by just saying you were from Newfoundland. It was right. just like... <laughs> So it was a very different time than now, right? Right. Like so many things have changed. We've changed, you know, and we've changed. But at that time, we were still feeling. And so I don't know. We wanted to do a show that more accurately reflected who we really were, you know? But <laughs> it, was sat- it was satire, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the it thing. Satire, it's yeah. your way to tell the truth through. Yeah, 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 yeah. We went to Philadelphia to 1976. We went to uh, Philadelphia to the Walnut Street Theater, and we played, and the Newfoundland Club brought out, bought out the last night. And Newfoundlanders in Philadelphia are just like immigrants anywhere and the old country, right? And we were doing... Uh, Oh, they were out. They were horrible. People were actually yelling, why aren't you doing something about the new high roads? You know, like, like, and we were just like, we had to cut the show really short. It was supposed to be this big. We'd done really well in Philadelphia. We'd gotten all these great reviews. And the only people who didn't like us were the Newfoundland Club in Philadelphia. But when Father Din was on, on uh, Father Din was saying, uh, I'm going to go now, boys. Like, you should, my son. Like, <laughs> Oh my God, we were totally devastated. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> wow. So uh, Radical just premiered. Yes. Your short at yep. the Women's Film Festival. And we were talking about it upstairs for a couple of minutes. Um, there's some really interesting things in there in terms of, um, uh, I guess, uh, there, there's, a, there's a comment you make about always playing older women, even when you were you know starting out, because you felt like, uh, you couldn't be funny, I'm paraphrasing, but you couldn't be funny while you were concerned with how you looked. Right, something like that. right. Now, yeah. other people have done it, obviously. They're brilliant uh, female comedians who look great. But I couldn't make the leap, like, because I was so worried about my lips, my, my hair, my, you know, my breasts, the works, you know. And uh, so I found, and I'd grown up with two older women and all their older women friends who could say anything and it would just be really funny. Like Rick Mercer always says that uh, when we were doing, um, when we were doing um, this hour, the first year, like he used to ambush politicians and then Marg ambushed politicians. Mm -hmm. And then he said, you know, I couldn't, it was like having your, uh, you know, older funny aunt who was half, half drunk, you know, you couldn't compete with that. Right. And that's what I felt like too. You couldn't compete with those older Newfoundland women who'd been through it all, seen it all, had a great, uh, I know there are a lot of, I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I'm, you know, generalizing, Mm -hmm. but uh, Aunt May's friends who, you know, um, were just so funny. Mom and them, that crowd, I mean, oh my God, they were like, uh, so, so I thought that it would be easier for me, and certainly it did prove to be easier for me. Uh, to to embrace that than right. to uh, you know try to be myself. I always thought nobody really cares what I say. Uh, you know this is ridiculous thinking. It's kind of like magical thinking. Nobody cares what I say, but people might be interested in what Connie Bloor says or Dakey Dunn or you know the characters. Mm-hmm. I always mm-hmm. felt like they had more uh, they, they had more right to say things. Well, it sounds like an extension of the the satire you're talking about on tour. You know, it's a mask. To tell the truth. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, there's another quote in that, and it's a book that you read talking about a woman walking by a window and seeing her reflection. Do you know what I'm referring to and, and the exact quote? Yes, it's Doris Lessing. I read it when I was young, and it stayed with me, but I didn't really, you know, embrace it. But Doris Lessing, uh, who's this great... British writer who meant so much to so many of us back in the day when we were back in the 70s when we were, you know, uh, trying to get a gawk at our vajayjays with those mirrors uh, at our consciousness raising groups. Um, But she was Just for listeners, can you tell us what vajayjay means? Uh. Everybody knows that. (laughs) Oprah said it. Uh, I don't have to explain it. But... uh, It'll be in the uh, podcast liner notes uh, if anyone needs to look at the show notes. um, But but, uh, Doris, the character was in her 50s and she was... She had just gotten a room... Like, you know, that that classic uh, creative women thing, you know, Virginia Woolf, a room of one's own. And this woman had just gotten a room in a hotel to go every day. And she didn't write or anything. She just was she 
was. And she caught sight of herself walking past a, a shop window. And for the first time in her life, she didn't think, how do I look? How do I look to somebody else? How am I, you know, she saw herself. And it was like this great moment of freedom for her. And I remembered it. And I also felt that way when I, like sometimes, like I said the other night, um, you know, now sometimes I see myself in the mirror and I go, oh my God, I look like an old woman. And then I have this great moment where I go, I am an old woman. And I have this great moment of peace and like, oh, you know what I mean? Like all that time being a woman, there is an enormous amount of pressure on women. And I'm, not, I'm sure there's an enormous amount of pressure on men too, but let's just talk about women for, for a second. Uh, to, to be something, to be what you're supposed to be, to be have the right eyes, the right lips, the right breasts, the right hips, the right everything. And you never measure up. Even the ones who have it all never measure up apparently. And, uh, and so there is that, and, and you are judged on how you look. Mm -hmm. And so the funny thing is, that when I got to be an old woman, it was exactly as I imagined when I was 18 that being an old woman would be when I was pretending to be an old woman and being feeling freer. You actually do get to be freer, you right. know? And, and they say that there's a... Uh, they've done a lot of studies now across a lot of different fields, and they say there's a U-bend towards a much happier old age, and that doesn't matter whether you're a woman or a man, uh, what your financial situation is or what your health situation is. That it, They're not guaranteeing you, uh, you know, eternal happiness, mm. but you actually do get happier as you get older, right? Mm -hmm. And isn't that, we didn't know. Because then, you know, uh, and it's like uh, adolescence. Everybody doesn't have a difficult adolescence and everybody doesn't have a happier old age, but generally, generally that's what happens. Isn't right. that great news? That is I great know. news. I don't know why people aren't yeah. out, you know, t talking about that all the time. <laughs> I'm so glad you got people to applaud for that. That yeah. was good. That yeah. was good news. <laughs> That's tremendous, yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about character creation for a second. Mm. How does it how does it work for you? <sighs> Again, easy questions today. Well, yeah, I I, I don't know, you know, because I've sort of stopped, you know, creating any new characters. I kind of happened to me in the middle of this hour is twenty two minutes because. The way this hour is 22 minutes would work is that every Monday there'd be nothing, and by Friday you'd be doing a live show. And so I don't remember the first few years, but there were characters that grew, and then and Wednesday there would be what Greg Toomey, my God, where would we be without Greg Toomey, but Greg Toomey would call it the humilitorium because we'd all come in with our material and all the producers would sit around and all the lighting people and everything, and then you'd read this stuff and it'd be like, People would look hurt sometimes at your material, like actually hurt and go, oh my God. So it was easier to do, like I'd just say, I'm going to do a dake. I'll have it, you know, we'll do it live. I'll have it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or I'm going to do a Connie or something like that. And, uh, and, and once people knew the character, then they were easier with the, you know, with the material, right? And so, uh, so I fell into that, and I realized I left this hour because I realized I wasn't going anywhere. Now, not that I went that far after it either, but uh, you know, in terms of creating new characters. But I, I, I tried to create some new characters, but I could never get them past the Wednesday. You know, I could never get them on right. the air, and I could right. always get the old people, the old characters on the air, the Mrs. E's and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I kind of, uh, and I was there twelve years, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, uh, now I go back all the time now, still, whenever they let me. But I created the show. I keep wanting to say, hey. Well, hold on. <laughs> I'm coming in this week. But it doesn't work like that. But anyway, uh, and I never say anything like that. I'm always very humble. Um, but I don't feel like that inside. But on the outside, I'm very humble. We'll, we'll, be, cutting, uh, we'll be cutting this portion in the recording. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, but yeah, so, so when I create it, now I don't... Uh, you know, I, now I've been writing, you know, like I've been doing a lot of writing, you know, like I wrote my book and it was published in 2017 by um, HarperCollins and uh, the person, Maureen Brennan, you know, I always take a lot from life, you know, that's what I always did and always do. I guess that's the answer to your question. Like, Dakey Dunn was like an amalgam of, of my brother and all the guys I dated, mm -hmm. tragically, uh, when I was, you know, in high school. <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, Marg was like, uh, you know, my mother and Aunt May and, you know, a whole bunch of, and in fact, her last name, Delahunty, um, Aunt May's, one of Aunt May's real good friends' name was Marg Delahunty. It sounded like such an, an exotic name to me. Right. And of course it is, and it's just an Irish name, but, but I loved it. I loved the name, and I kind of just took it. And Marg was just like who I'd like to be, uh, you know, if I, uh, you know, uh, wasn't, uh, you know, afraid all the time and Marg uh, you know and and the thing about Marg uh, when she had that warrior costume on was it was so humiliating to be out there in that warrior costume doing ambushes when other people were there in their Burberry coats from CTV or in CBC and stuff and you were there in that stupid gold glue and the plastic sword that you just uh, honestly you just think I'm so down anyway, I might as well just go for it. You know what, what I mean? Was, what was the first one? What was the first taping? First Marg. Ooh. I don't remember. Do you remember I remember feeling? I did a, I did one as, I used to do a, I, on, on the desk, we used to, we used to have our own names. We had other, because, uh, you know, we, uh, Molly, I forget what my name was now on the desk. And I went out in a beautiful suit with my hair all done beautifully and, and stuff like that. And I ambushed uh, a guy from here, actually. Um, uh, you know uh, what his name is. Uh, Susan Knight, um, her brother. Uh, he's a he writes in the star, Gwyn Dyer, and I I, I ambushed Gwyn Dyer, and uh, I uh, as this you know all done up stuff, and uh, he went. I asked him something because he'd just written something, and he went blah 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 blah, and I just stopped. <laughs> I just I didn't know how to respond to that. Whereas I feel like Marg would have you know just put the sword up to his throat and, you know, done something. Like, my character would have done something, but me, I was completely nonplussed. So I remember that was the first ambush. That went really badly. Right. Uh, <laughs> we never used it or anything. Right. Uh, but then I don't remember what Marg's first ambush was, but right. Marg could always find a way to make things work if they didn't, you know, like yeah. if somebody went blah, 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 blah well, to her. And that's interesting. I watched a clip with you and Strombo from a few years ago. Yeah. And it was the, uh, the Rob Ford clip oh my and you specifically remarked a similar thing on that I guess because he was so you mentioned the vibe he was giving off was so aggressive and upsetting that you kind of it stopped you in your tracks and it only really made it to air because he called the police on you no <laughs> he did call the police on me and made this major thing out of it and right. said he was terrified and stuff like that and that his children were there all lies that's the amazing thing about the conservatives is they all lie all the time I'm not saying they're all on crack they're not all on crack, I told, but I told the ones you. who we'll, are on crack we'll are lying. We'll get to it. Honest to God, but uh, but uh, it was really off-putting for me. I was the person who was scared because he was so out of it at that mm. point. But uh, but see, what we did then with Marg is we 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 just did other stuff. You know what I mean? And and I just kept at him. You know, kept after him. And uh, I, he didn't throw me back in the way that I would have been thrown back on myself if it had been me, right? But then he called the cops, and then I had to get out of town because uh, <laughs> the lawyer from uh, Salter Street, who were the people who were in, they said, uh, we're worried about you because, I mean, they're not, there's nothing they can charge you with, but they could make your life, you know, the cops, he's the mayor, and the cops are kind of, you know, his cops, and uh, they could make, you know, for a very bad evening and stuff. And uh, But anyway, they didn't come after me, which was good. Um, but he did call the cops and then he called the person who answered the phone the 411 person I see you next Tuesday um, do you know what that is? Uh, yes yeah. uh, I'm not going to say it but it, it will say here's the way to put it remember that old TV show Sea Hunt? Yes Right now say if a Newfoundlander was saying that <laughs> Yes Okay <laughs> Sealed. Yes. So anyway, also and apparently he abused them uh, at length and said, you know, do you know who I am and all that stuff. So it was a massive. And at that point, he was he, nobody knew about his alcohol and crack addiction, which, you know, when I think about it now, I'm sort of getting up on my high horse about it. But poor old fella. I mean, you know, he was struggling with it. It's a disease. It's not just some decision he makes to be, you know like doing crack and, 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 and alcohol. I mean, it is, oh, somebody's leaving. Bye. <laughs> the, um, yeah, so, so I feel kind of, uh, but I, nobody had any idea at that time 
what was going on. He was still, you know, the uh, the, the most popular mayor ever sure. in the history of Toronto. Etobicoke basically fell to their knees every time he came home, you know. Mm-hmm. So, And I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. but during that actually unfolding, were you bemused by it? Were you actually alarmed by what was going on? You know, somebody had written, like I do a lot of research, right? Uh, before I write something, just because I'm so nervous about, you know, so I, I had read this old piece in the in Toronto Life where a guy had gone to his house in Etobicoke, uh, or actually it had been a woman, I think, and he talked about the darkness that was there and how it was inside the house, it was all a mess, and, uh, you know, the children and, 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 and how sad it seemed and stuff like that. And so people were implying but nobody was saying right out that there was real pro- that he had real problems in his life right and then i read you know his sister shot her boyfriend didn't she I'm not sure. shot him in the head i think he was a drug dealer there were a lot of problems the family the fa- you know not mm-hmm. like our family has a lot of problems too so i'm just like i'm good. oh my god the fords i look down on them <laughs> so much uh, but uh, you know they they have a lot of they have a lot of uh, alcohol and drug problems in that family so that's what I think we must all do what Doug Ford did we must all even though we have no skills or whatever we should should take a page from Oprah's you know Sunday soul Sunday and just manifest say out loud what we want we want to be premier of Ontario just say it and just like Doug Ford like that we'll suddenly become Premier of Ontario for no reason whatsoever except that we manifested it and said that's what we wanted. Apparently. Apparently. Apparently that works. I'm doing it all the time now. (laughs) I want to be Premier of Ontario. (laughs) So over the years, I've I've taught some guitar, and um, I've often given people this example for how I'm trying to understand creativity, which is that I will teach... Like something like Smoke on the Water, you know, that little riff. Like a kid will come in and everyone learns Smoke on the Water for the first time. And they'll learn that little whatever five-note riff. And then two out of ten will come back the next week and go, guess what? I learned that song and I wrote another song. Check it out. And it'll just be the notes of Smoke on the Water in a different order. Uh And then I'll teach them another song and then they'll come back the next week, those same two, and go... I've written another song, and it will be a mishmash of those two songs. Wow. And I just think to myself, that's what creativity is. It is a gradually broadening number of influences that we draw from, and then eventually it becomes our identity because it's too hard to place where they all come from. Right, right, right. Does that make any sense at all? Makes total sense to me. Uh, You know... I think that some people say that we are all creative, and your story isn't saying that. Uh, but, uh, you know, that put in the right... I really believe that put in the hopper, we all, you know, because we have that thing of we want to be in with the crowd that we're in with. We want to be like them, right? We want to be doing what they're doing. Uh, you know, when I got, I got in with a bad crowd who, you know, used to go out to uh, VOCM Tower and, and drink Pinky on a Friday night, you know, and then vomit for hours. And and I did that too, you know, and... Uh, <laughs> I fit in as best I could. And I think I I got in with that creative crowd and I wanted to be there. And, you know, and uh, I believe that anyone who was lucky enough to be there would have gone, you know, like I said, like that first year that we were out on the thing, there was, I was pretty unhappy because I wasn't doing a very good job. This was even before the Codco thing. I But I, I didn't know, I didn't have another option and I wasn't doing a very good job, but Andy's comedy, his Newfoundland comedy, it filled me with such um, joy. You know what I mean? I wanted to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to do that. So like those kids that come back. So, uh, you know, and then to be constantly in that uh, hopper with those people, like that's what I, I wanted to do that too. And right. uh, so and I brought whatever... You were absorbing it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and, and you know, I remember Monty Python. I mean, I remember Monty Python, the parrot sketch. That's the first time I ever, like, I actually fell off the couch laughing. I was in the room by my, in the living room by myself. And, uh, and so, you know, um, you know, as a Newfoundlander, of course, I love people who are funny and I love to laugh. And so 
I thought this is a way to get love. Mm. <laughs> this is how. Mm-hmm. But I, my family never did find me funny. My family would always go. But now they find me funny because everybody else does. So it's weird now. Like they think I'm really funny. It's like, what? Where were you all that time? <laughs> you know, like people would just go. And, and, and again, that's what, you know, mom and them would kind of go. Were anyway, you see, were you uh, see, did you find yourself seeking that? Did you find yourself seeking that? Oh, uh, yeah, because they were all funny and they were all laughing at each other and enjoying themselves. And I would just visit sometimes, right, with them. And so I would try to be funny because uh, I guess, I, you know, people say I was funny in school. I don't remember ever being funny in school. But um, some people I went to school with say that. But then people tend to think of you as they know you now. And then they project back that right. you were, you know. And sometimes, like, I know, uh, uh, I... Uh, I used to lie a lot when I was young and uh, very creatively lie. And uh, when I came back to school in um, September, having spent the summer, you know, on Carter's Hill and going swimming with everybody at, at in, in the, uh, it was like getting in the Ganges for the free swim at uh, Bannerman Park. Yep. Um, the, uh, uh, the <laughs> I, I remember I had a Brooklyn accent for some reason in uh, Somebody said, why, why are you talking like that? And I went, oh, I spent the summer in Brooklyn with my aunt. And it was like, everybody who was there had been with me all summer at Bannerman Park. Like, you know. But, uh, and then I remember, you know, I said, I, and Susan Kent still, and I haven't really told her yet, my friend, not Susan Kent on this hour, but my old friend Susan Kent still says, remember that time that you wrote to the Pope about how there should be girl, women, uh, young, uh, so there should be girls on the, there should be altar girls, not just altar boys. And I still, and I saw Susan about two months ago, and she said, remember that time you wrote to the Pope? And I go, and I haven't actually, you know, told her yet. I wanted to write to the Pope, and I meant to write to the Pope, but I never did actually write to the Pope, right? <laughs> it would be just too much work. Uh, but um, Here's the reveal today. Yeah. Susan's going to find out. I never wrote to the Pope. I hope Susan doesn't hear this. I hope I get a chance to tell her first. Yeah. But, uh, but that kind of, you know, I was always living in another world because the world that I... So I guess I was perfectly, I, I was perfectly made to escape into... You know what I mean? It was like a, a series of fortunate incidents that landed me with that crowd who, you know, inspired me and helped me and humped me along, you know, as right. we did for each other, right? And right. Uh, yeah, so it was just uh, it was just good because I think my whole childhood and, uh, you know, the, the thing, you know, just I was up for that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, What's the common thread between all these things? I mean, you're you're a writer, you're a comedian. Uh, you've you've published now a, a fiction novel, you know. Yeah. What's what's driving these? Well, you know, the reason I've always wanted to be a novelist. That is really I forgot to say that when I said I wanted to be a journalist. But really, what I always wanted to be was a novelist. Because even in when I was about eleven, I guess myself and my cousin Mary Dalton wrote a novel. Everybody in my family is called Mary. It makes things easier. Even my <laughs> even my uh, my older brother Kevin uh, took. At Mary, Kevin Edward Mary, he took Mary in confirmation. My mother's name is Mary, my aunt's name is Mary, but anyway, uh, Mary... And uh, Catholic? Just kidding. No, 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 we're not, actually. Isn't oh, really? that interesting? Oh, really? No. Seventh-day okay. Adventist, really. Weird. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Of course we're Catholic. <laughs> Here comes the lies. Mary, Mary comes Walsh, the lies come still. on. But uh, uh, the, um, the, um, we wrote a book called May Woodbury and Her Adventures at School. May, which is a der- derivative of Mary, not wanting to get too far outside of the family thing. <laughs> and But we never finished it. We only wrote two or three pages. She was doing the illustrations and I was doing that because I was obsessed with those English boarding school books like Dimsey Moves Up, Dimsey Moves Up Again, Dimsey Among the Prefects, Dimsey Head Girl, Dimsey Maitland, very decent, dark-haired girl, um, a series of books anyway. So I wanted to be Dimsey Maitland. And so I also wanted to write that book, but we never got it finished. And you know how things stay with you sometimes? Like a boy said to me, a little boy said to me once, he looked at me, he said, what are you, a boy or a girl? And 
ever after I couldn't get my hair cut because I was afraid that people would think I was a boy. You know what I mean? I didn't get my hair cut till two years ago. Like I always had to have long hair just in case somebody else would say to me. So you know how things stick with you? Fascinating how that sticks. It yeah, sticks with yeah. you. And the, the, the way we failed to write that book, I thought I'll never be able to do it. I'll never be able to write a book. I will never be able to write a book because we never could get that done. Right. And then I did it. Oh, it was very, very satisfying, I have to say. <laughs> to actually do it, I, I would, you know, if there's something that you want to do, you must do it because the most satisfaction, and even though I, I, and I thought, I'm never going to feel bad that I don't get prizes or anything or I get bad reviews or anything like that about this book. I don't care. This gives me so much satisfaction. And yet this year, somebody else got, it was their first novel and they got on the Giller shortlist and I thought, Oh, <laughs> but but it was very. I was very very happy for a long time. <laughs> but I guess um, with the novel, as I got older, I I realized you know like I'm a big reader, and I never except for Percy James's House of Hate, I never really read a book that in some way reflected the culture of our family. That mm. kind of. Some reason, I, I guess it has to do with generations of drinking, I think, that kind of meanness that people that you love, you know, that you are so unkind, you know. And I always thought, you know, nobody else is right. And I so, so I tried to write a book, you know, I tried to write the book that I wanted to go, oh, this is just like us. This right. is just like me. And so it's not like everyone. And so everyone didn't, like some people thought, what is wrong with her? Uh, you know, why doesn't she just stand up for herself and stuff like that? And uh, people don't understand that sometimes you can't. And that, you know, she was only, you know, we. I, I think I only get more into about age 19 or something. Mm -hmm. And that uh, you, you know, you end up in, in certain, but it, it was a book that I wanted to write because I wanted to reflect. And I guess the characters and the shows that I do sometimes, I do them because I want them to be like the people that I know, the people who I grew up with. I want to reflect, you know, like my brother is, uh, you would meet him and he's a great big beefy guy and he's an iron worker and stuff like that. And he says terrible things sometimes, you know, but he is the most, um, he's the most insightful, amazing. He sees right through things. He has an understanding of life that people don't see because he's an iron worker. You know mm. what I mean? He has mm. a he has a brilliance that uh, he probably should have been some kind of a, an academic and done some, but he didn't, and he went that way. and And so I always want to I want to I want to represent you know nine and seven Carter's Hill. You know what I mean? Right. And that crowd and the crowd from Conception Harbor and Colliers, and you know what I mean? Yep. And they they're not. Uh, you know the middle class kind of dominates uh, comedy, like mostly everybody's from Rostellan Street and, uh, you know, Pine Butt Avenue, you right. know, there's not that many, um, you know, from Carter's Hill and, uh, and uh, comedy and novels and screenplays and stuff, the middle class uh, and, and, and up. And so, you know, I remember being so moved by... Uh, by Alan Silito's uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, by that whole group of young British novelists in, uh, they were the angry young men. They were all men, but they were all working class. And, uh, you know, I, I remember thinking, oh, not just like us, but, oh, that's, that's a voice. You right. know, there's a voice, right? Right. Yeah. That's us, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I have to pee. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should do that yeah. instead of the alternative. Excuse me for one minute. And anybody else could go to Absolutely. We'll take a short break. Two minutes, folks. Okay, obviously that's going to be the end of part one. We literally took an intermission to go to the bathroom at the show. It was spontaneous and it landed right in the middle of the conversation. So perfect. Tune in again next week when you'll hear right from there part two pick up and the last episode of If and When for 2019. Thanks for tuning in. Find this on your podcast apps. Like and subscribe and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye-bye.